Hi, folks. Good to be here with you. I was inspired looking out at, at our, our cyber zendo tonight. It was pretty still. There are much less people, you know, drinking beverages and cats sleeping through and ice cream sandwiches being consumed than when we first, we first started this. So I'm feeling really hopeful about that. Yeah, it's really nice. So the uh, theme of the talk, the title of the talk tonight, which, which helps, me, helps me write them. Once I come up with the title, then it clarifies for me uh, what I want to say, was sadness, seeing, and sobriety. And perhaps it's overemphasized that Buddhism is about uh, looking at and clarifying suffering. We have this particular national karma of, of racism and uh, police brutality just right in our faces. And, you know, it's, it's the Dharma has to respond to the pulse of the moment. And some people are encountering a great deal of, of sadness. Now, I don't know what you're supposed to be feeling, and I don't know where you're at, and I imagine we're all over the map. And for some folks, this, this is nothing new. And for some people, this is, is um, seeing something in much more clear relief than they ever saw it before. And there's even some, some shock or some, you could call it an initiatory moment for a lot of people. Being initiate, initiated into systemic racism and police brutality, being initiated into that being a reality. And sadness is one of the, one of the uh, emotions that can be part of the response in us. I wanted to start with an exploration of sadness. If you happen to be feeling it at this moment, then it's a direct exploration, but otherwise it's, it's a contemplation. So when you feel sadness, where do you feel it? Where in the body is the, is the data, the texture of sadness? And what is that, that texture? Is it, is it a solidity, a kind of weight? Is it a thickness of some kind? Is it a sting? It's the texture of, of sadness for you. If you were to tease it out from the other qualities that are present in your body-mind. We know about looking at the world through rose-colored lenses. But what color do you look at the world when sadness is up? 
Can you see sadness on the faces of people? Most of us are less, less social than we usually are. Can you see sadness in the postures of people? In your own face, in your own posture? And is sadness familiar in that you are able to be in relationship with it without trying to wipe it away? Is it frightening? Is there something unnerving about being with sorrow? Is it bewildering? Like, I know it's there, but I don't quite know how to respond or what I'm supposed to do about it. What response do you have when sadness arises in you? Was that one of the responses to perhaps seeing the videos of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd or brutality to police, to protesters by the police? Was sadness one of the things that arose and then what happened? And then what happens? Do you feel sadness about what human beings are capable of? Do you feel sadness about what human beings are susceptible to? Human beings susceptible to being perpetrators, being victims. Are we in an intersection in society that we have to choose to see and feel and acknowledge? And therefore we have to make a choice to be in relationship with sadness around society, racism. That's it for my, my inquiries there. Um, in practice over time, we learn to not be surprised about our eyelids getting peeled back about things. There, there are these times when things are just thrust into our awareness. And the, the unseen abruptly becomes the closely known. And it, it is often abrupt. There's actually an interesting thing. There's no gradation. There's no middle ground between seeing and not seeing. You either are seeing or you're not seeing. We may see in more or less detail, but when we open our eyes to something about ourselves or the world, it just, it's all of a sudden. Work may have preceded that from educating ourselves to the side of contemplative practice where we're training our attention in, in direct attending. But the seeing is, in a way, it's just, it's abrupt. 
And in regards to seeing uh, brutality or violence or seeing our own uh, indifference or ignorance, probably the same stages of grief around loss do play out, I would imagine. So in this case, in the case of practice, we often have a loss of innocence. A loss of innocence or a loss of an identity. Who we thought we were uh, is not quite who we are. We didn't quite, we didn't know that. So in practice over time, we're kind of doing, we're doing an expose, doing an expose of ourselves. And after we move through shock, denial, we were talking about that last week, the, the reflexive habit patterns of not wanting to see what is actually offered to see and the reasons that we do that and how we can undo that, that particular karma. So after we move through denial and shock into acceptance, we then meet sadness. Let's say we might then meet sadness. And sadness lives uniquely in each, in each body and heart. So for me, sad, I become aware of sadness in my face mostly. It's like a, it's a feeling tone. It's almost like a, a particular um, masking or musculature that I feel. And, and what happens to our energy and our outlook, all of that is very unique. And so we want to get, get clear on that. But as we do this, this beautiful expose of all that we, we contain, we meet sadness in the mix. And there are different kinds of sadness. Not all, not all sadnesses are the same. So I can observe in myself some kinds of sadness that are self-centered. They're kind of pouty. I'm just not getting my way. Or there's the kind of sadness that's related to um, disappointment that's based in expectations. I actually had a hot debate with somebody about this teaching of no expectations because that's something you find among uh, mystics from, from Rumi to Dogen Zenji, um, telling us that we should give up expectations. And this person said to me, but if I, how can we give up expectations? We, we need to hold people to particular standards in our lives. And I, I agree. But what we're looking at with expectations is carrying a vision forward into a moment of how it should be. And then when it doesn't, we experience the sadness of disappointment. 
So any case, anyway, there are, not all sadnesses are the same. In the case of seeing the extent of, of violence in our culture, in this case through racism, that is um, a huge sadness. That is a sadness that is not merely personal. That's collective. It's personal and it's impersonal. You know, the, the whole body of the culture is holding this. And then we, we each have our, have our portion. But this, this sadness of, of seeing uh, violence and indifference on this scale, and there are many issues that have this, this truth, it's huge and it's not personal. Although it may be sad to look at how we personally are animated by it. So this, this uh, sadness, it can be so large and connected to all of us. And in a way, we're all, we're all, we're all implicated. Now, sadness can be a bridge into sobriety. What I, what I want to do, and actually what I really is important to me as a Dharma teacher is trying to change the way we view emotion. Because um, as much as I don't like feeling particular emotions, over the years I've begun to see them as opportunities. So we wanna, wanna revision and, and renew the value in, in certain emotions. And, and, and sadness, the way sadness can ground us, bring us into our bodies, bring us into common humanity, it can lead to sobriety, a very particular kind of sobriety. In Dharma circles, you hear the phrase pretty often, um, things as they are, to see things as they are. It's kind of a tricky statement for people out, outside of Dharma because we know that we know philosophically and scientifically that we actually all see a different world. And that the way the human mind is, is we can't see things as they are. We always see things. The world arises with us and with our, with our vision. And we see through different beliefs and through different experiences. So things as they are is, is a tricky statement, but it's part of what we're getting at with um, sobriety. The Zen masters really challenge the idea that we can see with 100% clarity. There are a number of, of koans about the very um, seasoned old priests and how they would still acknowledge confusion in themselves. Uh, Dogen Zenji, for instance, at a very mature time in his life said, my life has been uh, one continuous mistake. My life has been one continuous mistake. And yet we get, more, we get more sober if we do this practice in a genuine way. 
So perhaps we were drunk on the bliss of ignorance and now we have to include more truth in ourselves. We have to reorient, to include uh, uh, another perspective. So Dharma uh, sobriety, now first of all, I think it's pretty obvious that I, I, uh, I'm not claiming sobriety, right? So I can only speak to this in my experience uh, to the degree that, that I have become a little bit more sober, just a disclaimer. So first of all, Dharma sobriety is not being drunk with happiness. Think about how we can get uh, drunk on happiness. Think about when you're feeling really great and times when that actually disconnects you from other people. Or you're feeling really great and then you get disconnected from your own existential um, questions, which are just under the surface, pulsing. One of the teachings on the heavenly realms, the so-called heavenly realms in, in Buddhism, is that uh, the problem with the heavenly realms is that we get disconnected from people. We get in a cocoon of, of happiness and we stop seeing. So not being, not being drunk with happiness related to that is not underestimating the suffering of others. It is so easy to assume that people have the same experience as us. So it's easy to assume that someone else's experience of life, especially if they're similar in some way, is the same as, as we have, but maybe not. So the sobriety in, in not, not knowing the struggle of people, not assuming, but rather, rather listening. Actually, when we, we talk about um, suffering and suffering beings, we have this, this continual teaching and, and reminder in Zen tradition to, to stay awake to that and to not disconnect. But what can happen is that we start thinking, uh, thinking pitifully about people and without actually knowing. We, we assume people are, are suffering in a particular way. Just the opposite of ignoring it. We assume that we know what they're going through and that we pity them because of whatever situation when we actually might be suffering more than them. Another form of, of Dharma sobriety is not exaggerating the power emotions have over us. We can tend to underestimate our capacity to feel. We, we overestimate the weight of 
an anger or a sadness or whatever moving through. And what is happening is, is we, we overestimate and then we invest with more power than needs to be there in that particular emotion. In regards to the, the situation of, of, of racism, uh, the term white fragility refers at least one aspect to white folks not having the capacity to feel the pain and the sadness and all the other emotions that come up when they confront this. And so therefore they don't. And so we, we can exaggerate the power emotions have over us. So a certain sobriety in, in our practice is, is, oh, okay, this is sadness. This is what it feels like. This is anger. This is what it feels like for me. As, as Zen practitioners, we discover greater capacity to be present with emotion without numbing out. And actually, it's not us that has the capacity, but awareness has this capacity. So we think, well, I can't handle this. But, at, but we discover more and more through our sitting meditation and through our other practices that it, we don't, it's not us that has to embrace it. There's something. There's something large, there's something large and translucent and, and heartfelt that is not personal, that begins to be rediscovered and come awake as we do sitting meditation. So we're not asked to hold the suffering of the world as small human beings. We're asked to hold it, let's say, with, with the company with the support of, of the Buddha, to use that language. The world holds um, the suffering. It doesn't have to just be held in, in me. The whole body embraces the emotion. So there can be an important sobriety as well about the work we have to do to be full human beings. Um, for me, this was a kind of pouting around, I just wanted to live my life and have fun. Isn't that, can't I just live my life and have fun? Well, the answer is yes, sometimes we actually can just live our life and have fun it's a particular it's a particular privilege in itself to just be able to do that but what makes it a sobriety is that when we when we um accept the work we have to do as human beings it actually is very grounding because all the while that we're not doing it it's kind of thrumming under the surface calling to be calling to be done so maybe we're not actually having fun anyway. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have fun. I, my, 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 my weakness in practice is I am too serious. So you, I, I wish you great playfulness as you navigate your Dharma practice. And yet, 
you know, there's actually a very interesting duplicity as we, as we do Dharma practice, uh, this work of becoming full human beings. We find ourselves more clear and more uh, translucent and more, more flowing. And at the same time, we know that we're more foolish. I'll give you another uh, Dogen Zenji quote. He said, an enlightened person and a foolish person share the same boat. That's a very interesting koan. Enlightened person and an ignorant person share the same boat. We uh, begin to see the world and the situations of the world and ourselves as broken and at the same time whole. Now the ordinary mind can't, can't do that. It's either one or the other, right? The world is either whole and perfect as it is, or it's broken. You can't have both. And for the ordinary mind, it's simply unacceptable to look at what goes on in the world, what Buddhists call samsara, and see that that's whole. That's not, that's not, you can't do that with the ordinary mind, that things are either broken or whole. But we discover something else. And that's a, a, a form of, of, of sobriety is being multivalent, being multi-textured. We can also um, view and embody sadness and sobriety uh, differently. Now, we can sometimes underestimate the power of, of how our beliefs affect the quality of our life. But beliefs really can uh, affect the quality of our life, and we, we can see that. Um, I was talking to my neighbor about all the police brutality that we're seeing, and she said, well... I feel it, but for me, I'm not, I'm not worried. I don't let it weigh on me because it's all in God's hands. You know, and she grew up in the South with, with lynchings happening around her. She said, this doesn't, I don't let this weigh on me because it's all in God's hands. And so she's able to, to hold it in a particular, with a particular grace. So here are, are ways that we can view and maybe it maybe really resonate with a certain truth. What if it was a primordial human task to carry and live with a portion of sadness? What if that's actually a given? Could there be a primordial primordial task? What I mean, like almost inborn. Like it just, it comes with having been given existence that this is one of the things we have to do. We have to carry some of the suffering of the world. We have to learn to embrace it. Maybe even make, make beauty from that, from that sadness. But if that was your view, that it is my task to carry a portion of the sadness and to, to metabolize it, then what would change? 
related, we can view sadness and sobriety as, as a gift to remind us so that when it arises, we don't default to, how am I going to get rid of this? Who can help me not feel this? But we can actually be grateful for sadness because of the way it makes us sober and retenderizes. I think of um, Carl Jung's, I'd rather be whole than happy. I love that. Rather be whole than happy. And wholeness includes happiness. But there is actually something kind of poetically enlivening when we're able to let sadness be part of our bandwidth. So, one of the ways that I experience that is it's like a layer now. It's a layer that I have access to among other layers. For whatever reason, I got an image of a tiramisu. There's probably a much, <laughs> a much better image, but that's what came up for me. But the, um, the, the layer of sadness, it, there's a kind of slowness and a kind of permeability to the light and the beauty of things. Right, the heart. The heart is is more. It's just more open. When there's that that quality of of tenderness. A shift in view. Now, I'm not sure if you can choose to do this, or if it happens with lots of struggle. But a shift in view that is available is from this shouldn't be and fill in the blank. This shouldn't be this particular form of violence or prejudice or what happened to somebody. This shouldn't be. We could shift from that, which has a lot of an effect on our body mind, that this shouldn't be orientation, to this is what is this is what is and i vision a world where this is more and more cleared away you see the difference there this shouldn't be is is like arguing against the universe we have to be angry with with the universe itself because everything that arises comes from the same source A big shift, it's a shift from this shouldn't be to this is what is, and yet I vision a world where this is more and more cleared away. This is, this is a delicate point, and I want, to, I want to articulate it. Sometimes if a Dharma teacher, in relation to certain kinds of suffering, just says things are just as they are, it comes off kind of cold. It comes off a little bit too, you know, easy for you to say kind of feeling. But what they're saying, I hope, is shifting from this shouldn't be to this is what is and yet. I think there's a, 
a deep part of us that recoils at disrespect for living beings. The, the visceral body wisdom of shouldn't be. Like the, the body, the body um, directly responds and informs when we see what is not, what is not right. It's one of the imperatives of getting back in our bodies as, as Western practitioners particularly, so that that body wisdom is available. But that visceral body wisdom of shouldn't be is different from clinging to an unaccepting position. So this is what is, and yet I vision a world that this is more and more cleared away, is a particular kind of uh, sobriety. I heard a, a pastor say recently that George Floyd's death can, he, he is seeing this death as something that both pain and much beauty is growing from. And so that brings me to, I want to open it up to um, the group. And the, the, the prompt is, how has this touched you? And what is growing forth from that? Now, there, there is um, no assumption on my part that you should be doing some, making some radical shift in your life. I don't know what your life is and what you're called to do. But if this is touching you, what, what is growing forth from that? I'm, I'm curious to hear, and I think it's helpful for the group to hear um, the range of, of responses.